So Denise and I, we like to travel. Uh, and, and we haven't been like a lot of places, but we've been a few places uh, around the world, uh, different places in America, uh, North America. We've been to a few countries in Europe. And one of the things that we really enjoy uh, about visiting new countries and new places is figuring out like the, uh, now that I'm here, what do I do? Because uh, everywhere that we go, we're visitors. It's a place that we're not from. We're foreigners visiting. And, uh, and so it was, it was funny when we moved here to Ireland. So in America, uh, we drive on the right-hand side of the road, and we have a rule that when you come to the stoplight and it is red, you can stop. And then after you've stopped, and if, you know, if the road is clear, you can turn right. We call it right on red. Um, and the only time you're not allowed to perform a right on red is if the sign right there at the traffic light says, no right turn on red. So when we moved to Ireland, I naturally thought, well, I drive on the left side of the road here, so when I get to this traffic light and it's red, I'll go ahead and stop, and um, if there's no traffic coming, then I'll go ahead and perform a left turn on red. So, well, some of you are laughing because you know that's not allowed here. Uh, but there was no sign that said I couldn't turn left on red. Um, but the, the point, and it's a bit silly, the point, though, is that um, when you go to new places, they have different rules. Uh, and the rules from your own place, uh, from my home place where I grew up in America, those don't apply in Ireland. Some of them apply, a lot of them don't, and the ones that do apply, it's just a coincidence. Well, yeah, I mean, you're not allowed to murder anyone in America, you're not allowed to murder anyone here, you know but it's a coincidence that it's illegal in both places. Um, so there was a really interesting story about this, uh, about a guy living, an American man, uh, or actually American lad living in another country. Uh, this happened in the spring of 1994. Um, and I, I remember hearing about this on the radio, and it's a bit weird because in the spring of 94, I was 13, so what in the world was I doing listening to news on the radio? But anyways, uh, there's this lad, a, a teenager, uh, his name was Michael Fay, well, it probably still is Michael Fay, and he lived in Singapore. So, some things to know about Singapore. If you are from the West, like I am, Singapore seems to have some pretty extreme rules about the way that you conduct yourself in society. So, for example, you're not allowed to chew gum. There is no chewing gum in Singapore. And that seems funny to me when I first hear about that, but it makes sense because Singapore has a huge population that lives in a very small space. There's six million, nearly six million people that live in an area that's not a ton bigger than Dublin. So, very densely populated. It's actually the third most densely populated country in the world. So they have some pretty extreme laws, or at least laws that when you're not from there, they seem pretty extreme. And so with this, this event that happened in the spring of 94, what happens is this guy, Michael Fay, he's a teenager, and he gets arrested in Singapore because he thought it might be fun to go out with his friends and just do a bit of vandalism. We'll steal some road signs, we'll throw some rocks through windows, we'll spray paint some cars. And well, anyways, he got arrested. And the reason that this was big news in America is because in Singapore, the punishment for vandalism was caning. And we don't do that in America. 
to, in America, that's a very foreign concept. And especially for something as what we would consider in America to be as small of a deal as just a little bit of light vandalism and destruction of property. And the American public was outraged that this would be allowed to happen to an American citizen. But here's the thing, this American citizen was doing the things that he did in another country. And this made big news, and even the president of the United States, Bill Clinton, he got involved and was talking to the prime minister of Singapore about how can we, how can we get this kid out of this? How can we reduce uh, the sentence for this crime? Oh, and four months in prison. I forgot to add that part. So he's going to get six lashes from being, uh, you know, caning, six lashes, and he's going to spend four months in prison. And in the end, he took his punishment because the position of the Singapore government that is in no way subservient to the American government, it is a sovereign nation, they said, you know what? You can do things the way you want to in America, but in Singapore, this is how we do things. So, 13-year-old me, here's this on the news, and, well, at the very least, I learned how not to conduct myself if I ever visit Singapore. But as a 13-year-old, even as a 13-year-old, I realized that when I visit a foreign land, I'm subject to the laws of that land. So the way that I conduct myself as a foreigner is important. So, 1 Peter. In 2.11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So let's review some context of this letter. So if we remember all the way back to the very first verse at the beginning of the letter, Peter addresses the letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So from the very beginning of this letter, Peter is referring to the recipients as exiles and sojourners. They're strangers. These Christians that Peter's writing to are foreigners in the land, possibly literally foreigners. They could be part of a Roman colony where Rome says, you live here? Well, now you live here because we're making a city. But they could also be Christians that left Jerusalem in Acts 8 after Stephen is killed. But if they're not foreigners in the literal sense of being from a different part of the empire, they're certainly foreigners in the metaphor metaphorical sense. So what I mean by strangers in the metaphorical sense is that when we're converted, we have placed our faith in Christ and we move from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. Paul says in Philippians 3 that we're citizens of heaven. And here in this letter, Peter says the same thing. Earlier in chapter 2 that Leon looked at two weeks ago, uh, Peter says, that you are being built into a spiritual house. And in verse nine, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So as Christians, while we live here on earth, or excuse me, when we become Christians living here on earth, our allegiances, our family, our citizenship transfers to heaven and it transfers to God's kingdom. 
Jesus says in the Gospel of John, it's recorded, Jesus says that I am not of this world, and my kingdom is not of this world. And this kingdom that's not of this world, this is the kingdom that we belong to as Christians. So in the world, we are foreigners. And this is what Paul is writing to the Christians uh, in this part of Asia, or Asia Minor, Turkey. Uh, This is what Peter wants the Christians he's writing to to remember, and we should remember the same thing. So he says, because you are foreigners in this world, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So again, back in chapter one, uh, a few weeks ago more, uh, Parag spoke on this, where Peter tells Christians that they are to be holy because God is holy, and calls for them in verse 13 to gird up the loins of your mind, or prepare your mind for action, to be sober-minded. He's calling, them for, he's calling for the Christians to be awake and to be alert and not to return to the ways of their former ignorance. And so now here, where we're at, Peter's transitioning to the meat of the letter, and so he calls our attention to this once more. And so what we see is that as Christians, we are not of this world, so we don't live like we are of this world. Which brings up the question, so then, how do we live? How then do we live in this world when we're not of this world? And do you find yourself ever asking that question, how do I live? If I am freed from sin, if I am born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an imperishable inheritance, what do I do now? How do I conduct myself if I am not of this world and I am not to live like I'm of this world? Do I retreat from the world? Do I separate myself from the world to abstain from the passions of the flesh? Do I separate myself from the world to avoid the pain of ridicule because I'm different? So, in verse 11, Peter tells these Christians what not to do. And now in verse 12, he's going to tell them what to do. So Peter's going to answer the question, how then do we live? And he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in this short phrase, Peter gives the Christians an instruction, and then following this instruction, he's going to flesh out over the rest of chapter two and the beginning bit of chapter three, he's going to flesh out what this means. He's going to give some examples, and he does this through discussion about the social order, uh, the society that the Christians live in, uh, the Christians that he's writing to, where they live. And so in the verses we're talking about this week, he's going to talk about Christians living in the wider society, their interaction with government. And then in the following two weeks, we're going to see how this plays out in the household. So next week, we will hear uh, about a discussion about how slaves and servants relate to their masters. And then we're going to hear the following week about how husbands and wives relate to one another in the home. So, verse 12, which we just looked at, is like the heading. Like, if we're thinking about this like an outline or a table of contents, 
So verse 12 is like the heading that's telling us what we're going to discuss about in the following verses. And here in this instruction is what Peter's getting at, and this is what he wants Christians to do in these three case studies. Now, verse 12, you may have thought, sounds a bit familiar. In the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, to let your light shine before others so that, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. And Peter instructs here in verse 12 to conduct yourselves honorably so the good you do will be a witness to those around you that through you they might even be saved. So now back to the question, how then do I live? I live so that my life points others to God. So Peter writes, Be subject to the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what does Peter mean, every human institution? And how does this put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So we're gonna revise some more context and that'll help us to understand what's going on here a bit. So we have to remember that when Peter writes this letter, Christianity is new. And it's hard for, it's hard for me to remember that because I'm sitting here with 2,000 years of Christianity behind me. But when this letter is written, the only people who really know what Christianity is are Christians. Because Christianity, to the people around, Christianity is strange when you compare it to what everybody else is doing. Christians are viewed as atheists because they only believe in one God. Christians are viewed as cannibals because they talk about eating and drinking the body and the blood of Christ. Christians, or Christianity, is seditious. See, as Christians, we proclaim Jesus as our king, and we claim our citizenship to be in heaven, and that we're living in the kingdom of God. So if you're a Roman governor or a Roman emperor, how do you think that's going to sound? So Christians are viewed by society with suspicion because nobody knows much about them, and what they do know is strange at the best and subversive at the worst. And here's something else. In the Roman Empire at this time, the emperor is viewed as divinely appointed, and often he is viewed as divine himself. And so emperor worship, the cult of emperor worship, is commonplace. Usually the divine status of the emperor is, uh, is given, and emperor worship begins after the death of the emperor, but sometimes this begins in certain parts of the empire. This even begins while the emperor is still alive. So now... If you're a Christian living in this world, how do you respond to something like this? And the way that you respond, how will the people around you respond to you? One commentator said that giving a pinch of incense in worship of the emperor 
would be the equivalent to the patriotism of standing for the national anthem or facing the flag. It's something that you do that shows your patriotism and shows your loyalty, but you don't even really think about it. It's such a simple act. But as a Christian, you can't give a pinch of incense in worship of the, of the emperor. Even if it's ceremonial, you can't give even um, the appearance of worshiping the emperor because, because you worship the one true God. So what do you do? Well, what you don't do is worship the emperor or any other god. Now, now that you're not doing that, you're unpatriotic, seditious, subversive, subversive, and suspicious. So we can see how easy it might be for the persecution of Christians to begin. Even before the state-sponsored persecution of Nero, we can see how in the communities where Christians live, Christians can be viewed as outsiders and can even be seen as working to undermine the empire. So, this is why Peter says in verse 17, honor the emperor. Fear God. Revere God alone. But we do honor the emperor. Now, verse 17, I know I'm skipping ahead. Verse 17, if you look down at it, it's, it I found this to be extremely tricky. Uh, uh, he, he says, Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And I felt it, like on, on its face, it seems really simple and straightforward. It's just four extremely short phrases. But then I also was like, well, why is it here? Um, and I don't have a really great answer for that. But some other people do that are way smarter than me. And without really trying to not really get into the weeds on this, um, What's going on here? So Peter, Peter's trying to thread a needle between two extreme responses. And this is, uh, this, this bit in verse 17, is he's, he's kind of saying, give everybody the respect that is due them. So for everyone, we honor everyone. Because everyone, all people are made in the image of God. And so everyone is due respect. Everyone is due dignity. So we give that to everyone. And then at the other end of the statement, he says, honor the emperor. But it's the exact same, it's the same, you know, as honoring everybody else. So even an emperor like Nero that is persecuting Christians, we still honor him because we honor the office of, of king. We honor the office of emperor. But at the same time, God is on a different level than the emperor, than the king, than people. And so we fear God and we reverence God. We revere God and we worship God. And we don't worship the king. We don't worship the emperor. And so, again, Peter's threading this needle. So one response to persecution is to give in and conform to the world, to blend in and lie low. So already, up until today, we've seen Peter talk about this, and he says, no. See, we don't blend in because we're set apart. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
Another response is to turn away from the world, to turn inward, and to view the people in the world around us as our adversary, or to view the world around us as our adversary. Or you could choose to lean in to the dissonance or the discord that comes from living as a Christian in a fallen world, and we can defy the human authorities around us and provoke those around us that we see as our adversary. But Peter says no to this as well. Here, Peter, in again, as we see in verse 13, Peter commands subjection to human institution, not resistance. The institution here being the government, the government at the national level as the emperor or the king, and the government on the local level as the governors that he sends out. And maybe this sounds hard to you. How can I be subject to a secular government when my loyalty is to Christ? So, let's remember that governments, nations, and leaders are appointed by God. In Romans 13, uh, verse 1, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So, we remember that the governing authorities are appointed by God. We can also remember that government in general is a good thing. In verse 14 here, Peter says that, um, he says that government punishes those who do evil and praises those who do good. And while all governing authority comes from God, we know that not all governing authorities behave in the way that God has set for them to. And this is wrong. But we are subject to the governing authority unless in doing so, we disobey God. We can also remember that bad government is still better than no government at all. Anarchy is not good. And finally, we can remember that obeying government authority is one of the ways that we obey God. Now, if this is something you're interested in, you can go to the church website, uh, or you can go to your podcast feed, and you can go to the sermon from 3rd October of 2021, and look for the one, it's called Romans 13, 1 to 7. Um, Jason preached on this in the fall, and he did a really good job. And I just want to add what I just said and what Jason says if you go to listen to this other sermon, and what Peter says here and what Paul says in Romans, this isn't a comprehensive look at the way that Christians interact with government. There are a lot of complicated factors in this, um, but what we have to remember is that what God tells us in His Word is good, and it's true. And God doesn't always tell us, the Bible doesn't tell us every single thing. It tells us everything we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything about everything. Um, and so, uh, yeah, let's not get hung up on that, on the part about that sometimes we want to think about, it's like, well, how do I know when I can disobey the government? Or all these, extreme, uh, all these extreme situations, what we want to think about is that what God calls us to do is to obey the government most of the time, and that's our default position. Our default position is cooperation. 
And so Peter is showing us this right path to walk between extremes. As a new creation, we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Our new identities are rooted in Christ and the living hope that we have in him. Because of this, we don't return to our old sins. Because of this, we are distinct and set apart. We are not of this world, but at the same time, we do live in the world. And in the same way that living in the world, I'm subject to the laws of physics, living in the world, I am subject to the authorities of the world because the authorities are a part of this world. Granted, I can't choose to disobey gravity. But living in the world, God wants me to participate in the world in order that I might impact those around me. And if you're a Christian, God wants you to live in the world so that you might impact those around you as well. That's why Peter says, for this is the will of God, in verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And just before that, in verse 12, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So doing good puts to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And what this means in this case is that by honoring the emperor and being subject to the emperor and his governors, Christians can put to rest the accusation of subversion and unpatriotism. Christians can say, look, look at what I do. I follow the laws, I honor the emperor, I honor the office, I honor the governors that the emperor has placed over me, but no, I cannot worship the emperor. That is reserved for God alone. In this way, the actions prove the accusation to be incorrect. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's all right, but you know, we know that Nero still persecuted Christians. And yes, we know that's true. Uh, what we don't know, one thing we don't know is, though, is the impact that the lives of Christians living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia had on the people around them in their communities. I would say a sort of positive impact of some kind because the church persevered. Now, if we look at Daniel, we can see a really good example of how this plays out. Daniel's taken from Jerusalem as a teen. Daniel's trained as an administrator, and he, is, and he rises to prominence in government in Babylon. He serves Nebuchadnezzar for many years, and he stays in government when Babylon is conquered by the Persians, and he serves again as a top official under Darius. Now, we know the story. Darius is tricked by some of his advisors into signing into law a period of one month where any prayer to anyone other than Darius himself is punishable by death. And we, knowing the story, we know that Daniel cannot pray to the king or any false god. And so honoring God by praying only to God, he's set up by the jealousy of the king's advisors and King Darius is stuck. He must have Daniel killed. So now I'm gonna read the story. And what, what we want to look at, normally we focus on Daniel, but what we want to look at is Darius. And what does Darius do in this story? Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, King, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought in and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. Sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages, excuse me, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Daniel faithfully serves for years in government service. In government service, we notice that he was forcibly recruited into, but he subjects himself to the government authority and obeys except when he can't. And at the end of the story, we see Darius the king giving glory to God. So this isn't a formula or a method or a way that we can trick people into converting or trick people into treating us well um, or what have you. This isn't a guarantee or a way out of persecution that we might have to endure, but it is a way that we're obedient to God. So we're not of this world, but we do live in this world. And living in this world, in verse 16, Peter says, live as people who are free. And remember, our freedom is from sin and death, so we can live as servants of God. Our freedom isn't freedom from authority. It's freedom to serve God. And to serve God, living in a way that we can be an influence for good to those around us. 
So I am not of this world, but I live in this world. And you are not of this world, but you do live in this world. So how are you living out your freedom that you have in Christ? Are you subject to the Lord, for, excuse me, are you subject for the Lord's sake to the governing authorities or do you resist? Do you do good so that people around you might see your good deeds and they might glorify God? Or do you damage the witness of God in the community around you? So what we've been talking about here is specific to governing authority as that's what Peter is specifically writing about, but I think there's a timeless message a timeless message here. John the Baptist expresses it as uh, he must increase and I must decrease. And Paul expresses it that I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And what I mean here is in becoming and in, in subjecting yourself to authority, there's something that happens about dying to yourself. Why do I say, why do I think that there's something about dying to yourself? Because, see, nobody wants to be subject to the authority of another. Nobody. This is a universal trait of mankind. And this goes all the way back to the beginning. You might even say it's a tale as old as time. In Genesis 3, we are two chapters, you're welcome. Uh, we are only two chapters into the Bible, and we see man's refusal to submit to authority. So we do this. We submit to every human institution. We are subjecting ourselves for the sake of the Lord. We die to ourselves for the witness of the Lord. So I must always be dying to myself so that I can live for Christ. In dying to myself and subjecting myself to the authorities over me, my heart changes, my heart softens as I start to put others first. So what does this mean, practically speaking, for us? Well, it could mean a lot of things. Part of government is we pay our taxes. Um, but what about, you know, what about a little, a little cheating on our taxes, a little tax fraud here and there? Maybe we move our income up and up or down a little bit, or we maybe adjust how much that we give to charity, or we hide something. What about the laws that the government puts forth? Do we obey the laws? Do we subject ourselves to the governing authorities around us? or over us, you know, uh, we just got through a really long period of having to wear a mask everywhere you go. And that wasn't a great thing, and, but, but there's, no, there's no moral objection, there's no uh, biblical objection to wearing a mask when you're in a public space, so that's how we can be subject to the governing authorities. What if you are in school? What if you're a, a teenager or a child? Are you subject to your teachers? Do you honor your teachers? Do you cheat on tests or exams? I mean, a little bit of cheating never hurt anybody, right? How about drinking? I mean, you're 17. You're near enough to the drinking age. 
you're not driving. You'll be safe. It'll be fine. A little bit of cheating there. A little bit of cheating the law didn't hurt anybody ever. Do you have a job? When you're at your job, are you the kind of person that is uh, working hard or hardly working? Guilty right here. Or maybe you steal from the time card. Take, take your 30-minute lunch and then clock back in and then you know, take 10 minutes to go to the bathroom. See, when we do these things, we think that nobody notices. And in some cases, we're right. In some cases, nobody does notice other than God and yourself, of course. But there's, there's an attitude here, and the attitude is it's about myself. And what can I get away with? And what can I do? What's, what, can I, what kind of benefit can I get for myself? And we don't want to be legalistic, right? Because we've been set free. We've been set free from the law. We have, and our freedom is in Christ, right? We don't want to be legalistic about these kinds of things. Like, oh, you went one kilometer over the speed limit. Oh, there's another one where I'm guilty. I've only driven in one country that I haven't gotten a speeding ticket in. So, yeah, we can call it bad luck, bad providence, or just bad driving. I don't know. You choose. But we have these, we have these things, we have these areas in our lives that we think are secret, where we can, be, we can do a little, a little bit of cheating or a little bit of, a little bit of this maybe, you know, tax fraud or cheating on the exam. Um, you know, nobody's around, nobody sees, nobody sees what I'm doing, but my attitude is about myself and pleasing myself. And that bleeds out into the way that I live and the way that I interact with the people around me, the way that I treat people. When I'm self-focused, I'm self-focused, right? But if I'm God-focused, I'm God-focused. So, we're not of this world, but we do live in this world. And for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ, and for the sake of the gospel. Let's live in this world in a way that honors God and glorifies God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that you uh, reveal yourself to us and that you make yourself known to us and that you tell us about yourself, the things that we need to know. Thank you that you saved us, that you've given us uh, a new hope and a, a living hope. Lord, uh, we, pray, uh, we pray that you would teach us, uh, that you would teach us to obey you uh, that you would teach us to die to ourselves um, and that you would work in our hearts uh, to know you more and to love you more and that we would see uh, the, ways, the ways that we live our lives that need to change um, and so that, 
so that we can be, uh, so that we can live live rightly in the society around us, so that we can be subject to those that we should be subject to, so that others may see and they may glorify you. Be with us this week uh, as we go forward, Lord. Uh, work in our hearts. Give us the desire to spend time with you in prayer, in time with you and your word, so that we can know you more and love you more. All these things we pray in your name. Amen.